0: Hello, and welcome to episode 2.9, the winter break edition of Notes from the Isle Seat, the podcast that covers the arts in northern Chautauqua County, sponsored by the 1891 Fredonia Opera House. My name is Tom Lachlan, and I'm your host as we bring you news and information about arts events at the Opera House and around the region, including interviews with artists and creators across the county. Well, I don't know about you... But after this November 2.0 event and the Christmas of 22 blizzard event, I am certainly glad to get a break from all that heavy winter weather since the new year began. It's nice to catch a break from all that snow, even if the weather is that typical dull, dreary, cloudy, sunless, chilly type of day so typical of the region. At least the temperatures are above freezing, and the current lack of snow makes it easy to get out and take a walk without much trouble. While area schools are back in session, the college is still on break, and while the Opera House staff is back in business, there's not that much going on in January besides the Live at the Met presentation of Fedora and the Cinema Series. So we'll cover those two events, as well as get a preview of the faculty exhibit at the Marian Art Gallery coming up later in the month. A nice light show, just to ease us back from break. First up, a discussion with Dr. Robert Strauss about the upcoming Live at the Met presentation of Umberto Giordano's opera Fedora on Saturday, January 14, 2023, beginning at 1pm. Dr. Strauss gives us a little insight into his own personal attachment to one of the opera's signature arias. Joining me now uh, to talk about the Live at the Met production of Fedora is uh, Dr. Robert Strauss. He is on the voice faculty at SUNY Fredonia. He is also the producer of the Hillman Opera. Uh, And we've talked many times and uh, 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 I don't keep count, but Rob's a frequent guest. So it's (laughs) it's always great to have him. Hi, Rob.
1: Thanks. I'm thrilled to be back.
0: Yeah, great. Um, okay, so let's so let's get right into this discussion of Fedora. It's uh, not really um, an opera that's uh, done a lot. It it seems to be a right. much more obscure one. But it's it's it, neither is it you know uh, something that is completely obscure. The Met has done it a couple of times, and it does have a history. So why don't we start off by talking about a little bit about the the the, the plot and the background of the opera.
1: <laughs> yeah well I'll, I'll start by saying you know there are there are some arias from it including the tenor aria Amor Ti Veta, which have been famous throughout i mean many many tenors like caruso and and domingo have concertized with that aria and so um so there but the but the story itself um is kind of standard opera fair mm-hmm. and i was i was thinking about it knowing about this interview coming up and i'm and I didn't want to just put it in opera's lap and make it sound outdated or uninteresting. I feel like it's a sort of plot that you can find in real housewives of whomever. Um so the pub- <laughs> the public is still interested in these sort of larger than life, you know, oh the the new man I'm interested in killed my husband and it was a political uh political issue but oh it turns out spoiler everyone stop listening if you don't want to know the end um but it turns out that he he killed my husband because he caught him sleeping with his wife
0: right right
1: and so it was a it was a crime of passion rather than crime of politics and but but by the end many many people are done and are dead and since my my lot in life is often to be the secondary tenor role uh-huh. i i like to say that in tosca 2 my character is the lead so by the end of fedora i could be the lead of fedora 2 <laughs> OK,
0: yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting little piece of that regard, because I, I think that the um a, the uh, composer Umberto Giordano was actually, interestingly enough, one of the uh, sort of leading lights of the movement known as Verismo Opera. Mm-hmm. And yet but yet this particular one that he did is not really classified that way.
1: No, it wouldn't be. Yeah, Verismo is is supposed to be sort of like ordinary life, ordinary people, very real but dramatic situations. And yes, this is about royalty and and politics, although there's a little bit, um, not to bring current day politics into it, but there's there's a certain amount of drama in that as well. But yes, sorry, back to, it's not really what we would characterize musically probably, but not dramatically as Verismo.
0: Yeah, and let's let's just uh, uh, touch on that just for a little bit because I listened to, you know, at least some of the opera I was listening to it uh, earlier this week and there's not the um you know verismo is usually a sort of uh, contrasted with the bel canto style and there's not really when you listen to it that kind of high flying lyrical uh Uh, touch to it 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 tends to be a little bit more I I really wouldn't know how to characterize it but uh, it seems to be it feels shorter and more compact and a little more uh, less less um, romanticized in terms of how the music uh, flows out um, both from the orchestra and from the singers
1: yeah yeah Uh, you know it's always interesting to look back um, on this but I but I suspect that the Verismo composers were really saying that they wanted to focus more on the drama in bel canto beautiful singing you know sometimes for the arias or for large chunks of time it felt like the plot stopped Mm -hmm. story stopped being told in a way while the singer just showed what they can do right now i'm not saying that that's true of bel canto but i think that's people who don't like it would say that for sure um but i suspect that the new generation of composers you know these long lyrical or florid uh, passages of coloratura didn't seem to them to further the plot, and so and also bigger orchestras. So they made the orchestras bigger and and the melodies less. I don't want to say less hummable, but in ways, it's it's less about that and more about furthering the drama, yeah. as they saw.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the case. Uh, it, it, when I was looking at it, I, I know that a Fedora happens to be one of a, uh, the, the shortest stoppers that I know it comes in at less than two hours, I believe. So, you awesome. know yeah that's saying something just to begin with i mean that's that's really uh kind of a but but i was um you know when i was uh, listening to the first act of it it just seems to it, it really the the lyrics and the music everything seems to really push the action forward there's only I, I i can only think of one one aria i think the opening aria by the soprano that comes in um fedora herself is mm-hmm. uh you know um a little bit um kind of uh set apart from the rest of the act but the rest of it just sort of you know flows along and uh, tells right. the story very quickly very quickly
1: i thought yeah more conversational in a way yeah
0: yeah much more conversational um now this this production happens to have uh you know a couple of uh, uh singers um that i think uh uh have um certainly some reputation but this one we have uh sonia yancheva the she's a uh-huh. bulgarian uh soprano and also Uh, The the tenor, the guy who's playing Count Loris, the love interest, uh, her love interest is uh, Piotr uh, Bekskala, I believe it's pronounced. It's a Polish name, so I'm having a little trouble getting it the exact. Can you tell us about these two
1: singers? You know, what I know of them is that they're just really, um, at my age, I want to say up and coming, but they've been on the scene for a little while um, doing things, but just really big and gorgeous voices.
0: Yeah. So I, 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 Sonia, I think has, uh, she's, uh, I don't quite know, you know, I think opera singers sort of kind of hit their stride in their late thirties, forties yeah. around that period of time. And she seems to be coming into her own. She's done, you know, she became famous for Mimi from La Boheme and a couple of right. other things. And now she's starting to pick up and she's done uh, a number of other, um, uh, shows at the Met and I think the same thing is true for uh Piotr he's also someone who is up and coming he's uh, uh done uh he's also done um La Boheme but uh
1: yeah
0: with uh 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 Natrebko I believe playing Mimi he's done up op- he's done uh opposite her so right so they're both really really very good singers do their voices need to be as big in this kind of an opera as they do in something like Boheme?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, and maybe even more so a little bit, um, for sure. Well, and and again, I'm basing this a little bit on the aria that I know that that's too big for me, but it's just the orchestrations are thick, the tessitura is uh, demanding, and not always high, but you have to make a lot of noise in the middle of your in your range. It's it's true for a for a Bohem to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think bohème sees us moving um, into that direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas Fedora is is there. is is
0: already there yeah well it's kind of interesting because i don't know you know bohem when you look at bohem and you put it against fedora some people will classify like bohem as uh, verismo some will classify it as bel canto but that you know and the same thing is true for this one We, you know is fedora verismo is fedora bel canto i don't really know but
1: well it's it's not like there was you know uh, an alarm went off and and someone said okay everybody put your pencils (laughs) down bel canto is over (laughs) <laughs> the next section we're starting is very small, you know. So
0: They're ne- the the line is never that hard. It's yeah, never that hard.
1: No, no, not at all. So that, you know operas written in the nineteen seventies will harken back to bel canto or or whatnot, just because that's what the the composer feels that the drama or the words or just the music they want to write.
0: Now tell me a little bit more. You're in love with that with that uh, uh, t- that um, aria in the second act from the tenor. What is it about it that that has always attracted you? I mean you told oh. me before we <laughs> you told me before we started thinking you, you, that I, you you've known it since you were 19 so you I, know
1: well you know with singers it's always the grass is always greener isn't it
0: yes <laughs> uh, you know
1: there's mimi's farewell from om that i want to sing someday i'll sing it uh-huh uh, in in a performance but uh, you know and and all of my soprano friends who want to sing una fortiva the tenor aria from lady's so in this case it's even worse because it is a tenor role but it's just not my voice type uh-huh. uh, as far as that goes but it's it's his profession of love to um to the soprano um and it's just it's gorgeous and lyrical and 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 big in all the ways that that and passionate and all the ways that you'd expect opera to be so I think that's that's what draws me to it although it's also that jealousy so I'll admit I'll own up to that
0: Well, you know, that's that I've always wanted to play Hamlet, but then again, you know, Thornton Wilder said they all want to play Hamlet, so (laughs)
1: really, I think, yeah, that's what it is. That's what uh, it is. Meanwhile, Uh, there's always someone who wants to play the roles that we can, so
0: that's right, that's right, yeah, uh huh. So, um, so the, uh, and I think that, by the way, I think that section really ends with, um, I, I read a couple of times where, um, both, um, Pase Domingo, I think, and you know, I think Jose Carrera is also saying that, but the, the, mm. the, the kiss at the end of that opera is supposed to be like a huge, big, dramatic moment, and it really knocks people's socks off when they see it. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that really like, culminates the whole thing. Um, I was, I, I know, I know that... Um, there's an interesting trend going on at the met i'm not sure fedora is part of this um but it seems that the the met is now beginning to trend away from the sort of the standard classical fair that they've been having for years and years and uh you know they they had an incident over the uh uh holiday season where their box office was hacked into and they couldn't sell tickets for a long time and when they came out of that and finally resolved that they really began to talk about the fact that they were going to go in like a more modern direction. And do you see, I and I've also noticed in doing these interviews with, you know, you and um, uh, Julie Newell and uh, Dan Eos that they are more modern. I'm not talking about, we're not talking about that. We're talking about things like, um, you know, fire shut up in my bones and the hours and so on and so forth. Do you see that trend continuing? Well, I think,
1: I think I do. You know, there's the really skeptical part well it's not skeptical but the practical part of me that it, it's selling it's selling really well. these new operas are selling very very well so of course mm-hmm. they're going to keep producing them and looking for um other new stories I think that's great for for uh contemporary composers to write this stuff but I think it's in, in a way it's it's a perfect storm because you know, Fire shop Shut Up in My Bones, is a it's a contemporary story. It's Charles M. Blow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, The Hours is also contemporary-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the characters, uh, <clears throat> secondary characters dying of AIDS. Mm-hmm. So, you know, audiences can see themselves perhaps better in these stories, insert themselves into it, which is, uh, I think, part of why I enjoy theater is being able to identify with the people on the stage and, uh, oh, I felt that way um, before. And and the ownership, I think there's the other practical or skeptical part that, you know, it could be donors are interested in seeing this sort of thing and and being a part of, you know, if, if there isn't money to produce opera, there isn't opera, of course. And so mm. it could be that that the Met has done a really, really great job of fostering relationships with people who want to be a part of not the, you know, the 20,000th production of Rigoletto, which I hope they keep doing, um, but in the first production of The Hours.
0: Right. Right, and 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 as also, I think that this is consistent. I see it in theater too, and I guess it's probably running an opera to you know diversity inclusion, trying to yes. get stuff onto the major stage of the United States that really has those elements in it.
1: Yeah, inclusive and representative, and and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, I i'm tired of looking for silver linings in the pandemic because there weren't any um ever (laughs) but it but we did have the chance to sort of sit and think about when when we as we're coming out of this what do we really want to do do we need to keep doing the same things the same way that we've done for a century or can we at new things do things in new ways so right yeah and
0: and i actually think that some of the ones i know that uh champion is coming up also later on in the season for live at the met so we're going to get a a more of a dose of these kinds of things but we also get the standards like uh rosen cavalier and stuff like that as well so yeah yeah you know, so it's a, it's, a good, it's, a, it, it's a good mix. Well, Rob, listen, thank you for coming on. And I know that I'm going to be talking to you later in May because you are bringing, you are among the many hats you wear. You're also the artistic director of the Buffalo Gay Men's Chorus. And yeah. I understand you've booked the Opera House for May, yes?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that, yeah, the Buffalo Gay Men's Chorus will be at the uh, Opera House on May 13th, a Saturday, I think it's 7.30 p.m., uh, doing a concert, Stronger Than Silence, um, and and it's exciting um, to sh- show off the opera house to the chorus, and hopefully show the chorus off to people in the area.
0: Now I'm gonna just I you got to give me a teaser. Just give me one one thing you have planned on the program just one because Uh, i
1: have (laughs) oh no you have to uh oh you know i love all my children equally so (laughs) we'll be uh, that night will be the first performance of a piece called warmth is my home Uh which was written um for us by fredonia um alum mickey wadsworth uh who graduated mm, three or four years ago from the um composition area so they they wrote this piece for us using words um by the chorus and by other buffalo area lgbtq plus uh individuals uh they we sent out a survey they answered it um and so it's it's our word so i'm ex- i'm excited about that
0: okay well well, we have to stop right there otherwise i we'll have nothing to interview you about (laughs) when i
1: get you back in
0: may exactly so so we want to we want to hold off on the rest of it but always that little sneak peek to entice people to come back and listen to the next interview that'd be great Uh, Rob. while while
1: they're at fedora during the intermission they'll have something to think about
0: that's right there you go (laughs) wonderful rob as always such an, such an entertaining time to talk to you. I really appreciate your time, especially during vacation. And uh, we'll for sure be seeing you uh, and listening to you again in May when you bring the uh, Gay Men's Chorus down here.
1: Awesome. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Rob.
1: Take care. My pleasure. You too.
0: Fedora by Umberto Giordano will be screened on Saturday, January 14th, 2023 at 1 p.m. Tickets are $20 for the general public, $18 for Opera House members, and $10 for students. You can get tickets by calling the box office at 716-679-1891 or online at www.fredopera.org. Live at the Met is underwritten with support from Daniel S. Kaufman and Timothy W. Beaver. The faculty exhibit at the Kathy and Jesse Marion Art Gallery is a biannual event where the faculty of the Department of Visual Arts and New Media at SUNY Fredonia exhibit some of their latest work. It's always a wonderful and varied look into the talents of the faculty and their various media, and I spoke with Mr. Peter Tucker, Associate Professor of Sculpture, to get his take on the exhibit, as well as to find out what he's working on for the exhibit himself. Joining me now is Associate Professor of Sculpture over at uh, uh, SUNY Fredonia, Department of Visual Arts and New Media, Mr. Peter Tucker. Peter, how are you? I'm good, Tom. Happy New Year. Ah, happy New Year to you, too. Uh, it's it's always good to start 2023 off, and uh, hopefully you and I will become better people as the year goes on, right? <laughs> that's,
2: I, that's the goal. That's
0: the goal. That's, that's the goal. <laughs> So so let's let's start off with uh, the whole concept of the faculty art exhibit. I, I usually they do that like every other year. They start yeah, off the spring exactly. semester. Is that right? And what? Yeah, uh, yeah every other year. And and the uh, the department has made a commitment to that. Yes. What's the purpose? Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I I'd say um, I mean I think the primary purpose, as, as it should be for the gallery, is is at an educational institution is to is to provide uh, you know opportunities for our students to see. Uh, a variety of uh, forms of artwork and, and ways of working. And I I a lot of us, uh, myself included, I, I almost never show my work to my students. So I think it's great for them to see what we do um, so that they can sort of get an understanding of, you know, where we're coming from and how we approach
0: stuff. Um, so
2: I, I think the primary purpose, though, really is, is as a educational tool for our students so
0: yeah okay that's uh and that's always a good thing well you're an artist in your own right obviously you're a sculptor and um you've been uh, working in the department how many years now
2: i think this is going on 14
0: going on 14 years right yeah. and and obviously you've developed an aesthetic so talk to me about a little bit about your artwork your own um journey through uh sure. Your, you know, your process, how you got to be where you think you are. And then we'll talk about a, a few maybe of the pieces that you're going to uh, exhibit. Sure,
2: sure. Yeah, it's actually really interesting to me, Tom, because I I recently made, at least mentally, kind of a big shift in my work. And I think that's, uh, to me, it's also really evident in the in this exhibition, because I'm showing a piece I made in 2020. Um, and then I'm showing pieces, I'm still in the process of sanding as we're speaking as tom can see me working on these little jewels cool. i'm making out of wood but um and so for me the um I, i'm i'm right in the middle of this big shift um, uh, which is kind of exciting uh because i'm shifting from these large scale pieces that i've made and um i used to make well, and one of the one of the pieces in the show is, is called a is a harmonograph, which is a, a contraption. And so I often made big wooden contraptions th- that were designed to engage the viewer usually or, or have the viewer operate them in some cases. Like in the, in the case of the harmonograph, the viewer uh, manipulates it and it draws for them. So it makes a drawing. Oh, it's it's a little like a spirograph on drugs. Uh, okay, it's 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 a crazy contraption with big pendulums on it. Um, it is not. I have to be fair. It's not my design. It's an, it's a Victorian parlor game kind of thing that I've recreated my own model of. And so that was. So the harmonograph, sort of, to me, is almost maybe the end of that kind of big contraption thing. I, I'm as I Tom noticed at the beginning of our chat today. I'm sitting in my basement, and my basement has crates and crates of big work. And I'm a little tired of crates of big work <laughs> sitting in my basement, because uh, because I'll make a big piece and I might exhibit it a couple times, and that's on me. I mean, I could be I could be trying to to show these more and and, and get them out and sell them, and that's not been a focus of mine at all. So, but I was honestly, it was just getting tired of of these big things, and I, I also have recently really discovered the beauty of wood in a much smaller sort of more intimate scale. So I'm I'm working now. Uh, on this kind of jewelry scale, although big jewelry, right? I mean, that right now I'm thinking of these as as wearable sculptures, um, and they are big chunk. Like this is just one of a, a you know, three inch block of wood. It's just one of a dozen gemstones that I'm making.
0: Yeah, and for um, the sake of for the sake of the listener, they fit in your hand. I mean, there's there's right, one right. one of these gemstones is about fits in your hand, nice and comfortably, so they can right. get an idea of what the size is.
2: Exactly, and there'll be a whole bunch of these um, in a big necklace form. Uh-huh. so um and, and it's a, and to me what's what's the tricky part for me is that for a long time the content of my work was about engaging the viewer right like was was really about creating an opportunity of creation for the viewer and that's and that was that was the formal focus of everything right Every, everything just kind of revolved around that and now i'm making these objects that are standalone objects and that's a whole different ball game for me Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's much more traditional sculpture in that sense that, you know, a lot of uh, sculptors often are object makers and they make these things, whether they're out of steel or wood or plastic or whatever.
0: And and the, and the viewer sits back and sort of takes them in, you know, uh, admires them or thinks they're disgusting or whatever it is, but basically that's the relationship between the object and the viewer.
2: Correct. Correct. And I think I'm not quite willing to go to, yet to fully freestanding object, because it's just, it's already a struggle for me to make a wearable sculpture. I mean, I'm loving it, I'm really enjoying this transition, but uh, but conceptually it's hard for me to sort of give up on this idea of uh, viewer interaction. And so maybe, uh, maybe I'm justifying it to myself by making it a wearable that someone could in fact engage with individually.
0: Simply by putting um, it on.
2: Exactly. But, and maybe that's just my way of moving forward. I'm not sure, but, uh, but it's fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And the scale is fun. It also just makes it um, so that I can, you know, at home, uh, I have teenagers. And so they're so self-sufficient these days. Mm-hmm. I got time. I got plenty of time to come down to my basement and just get some work done. Because <laughs> they're not, they're not asking for much. So it's, it's been a, it's a fun shift, but it is, it does feel, um, Drastic to me, the shift from uh, creating viewer participation kinds of works to uh, more just sculptural works. So. so is this is
0: this more like um you know when when you're first doing those big works that were viewer interactive? Then it, it, it's sort of a movement between focusing on the 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 viewer of the artwork to focusing on yourself as the artist in a way. Yes
2: maybe I I think of it as focusing on the material right I mean to me oh, and okay. that's, um that's what I love I'm staring at this block of wood which um which is what I'm enjoying about this I I really th- there's so much amazing wood in this area mm-hmm. um and you know and places like Amish Mills and and small woodworkers and and I, I can I can I can see or hear a listener saying, well, that's not environmentally sustainable. Uh, but <laughs> but, uh, but this that all these jewels are made from a, a bush that died in my front yard, a yew uh, that was really old, and so uh, I, I harvested the the trunk of that, and uh, that's what this is made out of. And the harmonograph was made from a tree that fell down uh, across town.
0: Now, uh, these pieces that you're making, you say that they, you say that they're wearable and one of them is probably like going to be a necklace. Are, is there any other kind of identifiable wearable that you're working on, too? Is it is it is it? I have, there... well,
2: I have 2 uh, they're both. I have two sort of necklace forms uh, that I have in the show uh, and they're both. brand. I mean, this is the first time I've ever made that kind of a, a wearable form in any way, shape or form besides a wooden ring. You know, I've made rings as gifts for my family. And so, yeah, right now, this is, this is all I've done, right? I, it, literally, this is my second necklace ever. So, wow. uh, yeah, no, it's, and, and that's, I think that's part of the fun of, um, a faculty exhibition is it, it's, it's not, it's not high pressure, right? I mean, I'm not like, it's just not high pressure. And so I can, I can experiment and make new work and play. And, right. um, uh, and, and that's also something I want to encourage my students to do too. So. Well right. I think
0: it, I think it's interesting that you're putting out something that you like made you're, you're going it's only going to happen in existence for like Two weeks, as opposed to yeah,
2: I'm not done with this one yet, and it's due in the gallery next week. So yeah, so there, so there you go. You know, so,
0: so I, but I love that idea. I love that idea of the artwork being being fresh and 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 saying to your you know your students and also the people who come to the gallery. You know, I'm in a transition phase. Here's a little bit of what I'm thinking about doing, and this is a little yeah. bit of what the direction is, and it's it's certainly not you know uh, a piece of quote unquote art. Uh, but it's a process. You're actually showing a process, in a sense, to people.
2: For, yeah, for myself. And then that, that will also give me an opportunity to to see the reactions, you know, and get people's reactions to the work. That's um, all right. Man, this feels good. I've been uh, sanding like crazy on this wood, and I'm, I haven't even put the finish on yet. I'm just having – it's so beautiful.
0: It looks beautiful. It looks polished, and, you know, it looks like a diadem of some sort, I mean, from yeah. what I can tell. I mean, it's very nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, these are these are really fun. And they I I and they were just explorations. I had this, you know, the trunk of this bush that I cut down a few years ago in my yard. And and I just started cutting it up on the bandsaw, just sort of seeing what the inside looked like. And then, oh, what if I cut it at this angle? What happens when I do this? What happens when I do this? And then I was like, well, wait a minute, that whole thing looks pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's see if I can make more of those. <laughs> so. Uh, so let's talk just a little bit about uh, some of the other uh, artists who are going there. I know yep. you don't know everything about what's going in. I actually couldn't find one person who knew about everything that's going into this exhibit. <laughs> yeah. So so there, there,
2: there probably isn't one. I mean, except the gallery director probably has a better sense, but they haven't seen, you know, like the stuff that I'm still making. So
0: Exactly. And I, mean, I perhaps that's the fun of the exhibit. That's what's going to be the fun of the exhibit is everybody coming in and going, oh, there it is, you know. Right. Uh, right. but one guy I know that whose work, you know, who's going in well is, uh, Tim, Tim Frerick's work.
2: Right. I, I, I think, uh, and Tim, I, I, just had a show at the Birchfield Penny recently. And so, and so I think some of the pieces from the Birchfield will be in this faculty exhibition. And, and I, I think Tim's work is really beautiful and it's really poignant because it's, um, it's, it's not only about our area, often about Lake Erie, um, but it also uses materials gathered from the area. So for example, he might, and I'm gonna to totally speak out of turn because I, I don't really know exactly, but I know he uses like ice melt, for example, as water uh, to make some of the papers that he makes for his pieces. So he's gathering not only uh, materials from Lake Erie like uh, driftwood that he's cutting up to make book covers, but also gathering other materials to, to use in the production of paper and handmade books that that tim makes and in his uh artwork as well in his you know 2d sort of work um but it's all thick with meaning and i think that's i really love that about tim's work it's really it's very thoughtful uh and very place oriented and i think all all of us can relate to that i think when you see his work um well tim
0: is a a, tim is a printmaker to be clear
2: right tim's a printmaker who also who makes um artist books as well, and he's actually really turned me on to to artist books, uh, and he brought in an artist from Lithuania recently, we just had for a few weeks at the college through the Erasmus uh, Scholar Exchange Program that Tim and I have both participated in, and this Lithuanian book artist uh, just really turned me on too, on to, to making artist books. Uh, anyway, I, I think back to Tim's work, I think um, his work is always enjoyable, and there's always so much, there's so much there to learn from, Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is really lovely,
0: and I know also that uh, uh, you know someone else's work I'm a little bit familiar with. I don't know if he's still going in this direction. It's Jason Dilworth. He's also very interested in you know sustainability in his work as well.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, he and uh, uh, our other graphic design faculty, Megan Urban, have, have created a um, I don't know if you would call it an entity, but they they have a a, a project called Designers and Forests where they're looking at uh, ways to you know utilize the wood, for example, from all the ash trees that are dying locally um, through uh-huh. the from the emerald ash borer beetle, and um, and uh, I, th- I know in this faculty exhibition, Jason also uh, as a graphic designer is um, used his skills to create exhibition catalogs for the Marion Art Gallery for over the years, and so I think in this exhibition he's going to be showing a variety of the catalogs he's created, and they're really
0: beautiful. I mean, they are they are unique works of art. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very good. I've always liked his work. I don't know. There's other other people who um, I just want to touch on their names and probably what they do. Some of them I know, and some of them I don't know. But I know yeah. Phil Hastings will probably have some of his animations up. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. The the two photographers, Stephen Comp and Liz Lee, are going to have uh, uh, their photography exhibit coming up. And and as you said, uh, uh, Megan and Jason will be doing what uh, they do. I I don't know if you know anything about um, some of the other artists. I see a uh, Kathleen Fenton. Tom, she
2: is like the loveliest person on the planet. And uh-huh. I, I, I'm i really excited to see her work in this show. I have no idea what we're going to see. I think she's, I, I suspect, kind of traditional illustrations, but I really don't know. uh And Abby uh, is a new uh, animation faculty member. And I'm, I'm very excited to see Abby's uh, animations. I know she was dealing with shadows, which in this, in an animation. Uh, and I think, um, and, and she's doing rotoscoping, which is just a process of animation that I really like. Oh, I so, like rotoscoping too. So yeah. I'm super excited to see what Abby has to show us. Uh, and then Alora McCullough is a, a sabbatical replacement who's here for a year. She's taking Hide Sarahara's place for the year. I haven't seen any of her work except for on her website. And so I'm very excited to see. I know she's uh, has some small porcelain works. Yes,
0: she's ceramic. Uh, she's taking the yeah. ceramics. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. uh,
2: that'll also- be fun.
0: A couple of others I'll mention real quickly. Uh, Nicholas Borelli, he apparently does playful mutant creatures. I don't know what that means, but we'll find out. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, and Nick is an alum of our department, too. He was here when I started, actually. Oh
0: so okay there we go and uh casey kelly perez does uh i think she's a graphic designer does beer Correct. liquor labels for local distilleries and uh and does, uh sarah zach who does large-scale paintings with figures uh that kind of thing so yeah. there seems yeah. to be a wide variety out there so uh listen thanks for your time i do appreciate you oh, coming down take pleasure. a little half an hour or so to talk to me from the dungeon of your basement there my and I pleasure
2: hope- i got it a- i got another piece uh shined up while we were chatting so i'm Feeling good about that. Thanks again, Peter. Have a good day and enjoy yourself. Good luck. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.
0: The faculty exhibit will run from Tuesday, January 24th through Thursday, February 2, 2023. So you don't have a lot of time to get there and view it. An official opening reception will be held on Friday, January 27th, 2023 from 6 to 9 PM with the artists present to talk about their work with the general public. Admission is free. Please check the Marion Art Gallery website for more information about specific dates and times. There's no arts calendar for January 12th through 24th, 2023, as there are no arts events outside the Opera House in the region yet up and running. If you do have a coming arts event, however, and would like to get it mentioned on the podcast, send an email to operahouse at fredopera.org or call the box office at 716-679-1891 with your information. The Cinema Series has a full complement of films this January. So, if you're looking for a reason to get out in the coming weeks, you've no excuse not to come to the Opera House and catch a quality film. The Opera House is the ideal place to enjoy these kinds of films. Perhaps not quite as convenient as streaming at home, but the quality of the film experience is much more immersive and so much more satisfying at the theater. And who better to talk about these three upcoming films with me than Hollywood's own movie guy himself, Mr. Paul Preston. I'm always glad to know what the movies are coming up at the 1891 Fredonia Opera House, because that means I'll get a chance to be able to talk to uh, one of my favorite guests, Mr. Paul Preston from The Movie Guys. Hello, Paul. Hello, Tom. And yes, thank
3: God there are movies coming to Fredonia. I mean, back when I went to school there, there was the Cine 1 and 2. <laughs> it was over by the Sidies, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the Yes, name that's, of the that's the correct. Sidies. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and wow. then it was the Dunkirk
0: regent or something like that which is long gone oh well actually the building is still up and they were supposed to turn it into something but it's uh, but the building is there but it's all boarded up and everything like that Uh, yeah and then uh,
3: instead of driving to buffalo they finally brought
0: that multiplex out by the by the interstate but that's gone now too right no, it's not, actually. Oh. It's still oh, it is. there. It's still there. Oh, yeah. um, um, okay. But they don't put the titles up anymore. They just tell you to go to the website. And um, that's- okay. So, see? That's me driving by it last summer
3: going, well, this is closed. When mm. I was 16, that's part of the job. You tear tickets. You restock the popcorn. You go out. You put the letters in the marquee. It's not going to kill you. Oh, boy. Hey. Okay. Well, listen. I'm sure the stuff that's coming to the Opera House is not coming to the multiplex because – that's the deal with the art house scene. You get the better stuff, and it's awards season, so you got some good stuff
0: coming up. But I think these movies are really going to be entertaining for some people. So uh, why don't we get down to brass tacks here, and we'll give uh, the audience a little preview on the movies that we've got uh, coming up. Um, the first one is uh, kind of a, 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 an interesting. <laughs> I it was it's an interesting little film. It's called The Menu. Give us a rundown on on this
3: one, The Menu well it took me a while to sync up with what this movie was doing but once you get into the, its zone cuz it definitely creates an atmosphere and a tone that you have to buy into a premise that you have to buy into you're in for a scathing takedown of the upper class which mm. great timing <laughs> so right uh right when you know we got guys you know steve bezos shooting himself into space let's take down the upper class a little bit mm-hmm. so ray fines as you mentioned plays the highest of the high-end chef who has invited a very specific group of people to a remote island for an exclusive restaurant experience like 1500 plates and all that kind of stuff big gourmet menu and he has some surprises in store for them um it's tough to talk about this one without including the finale in the film and the chef's final statement. But along the way, you've got some very entertaining characters. A you know, a snooty foodie mm-hmm. who talks down to his girlfriend about everything he knows about the food, you know, all these online people who love to chat about food, and um a ridiculously rich older couple, a formerly famous actor. That's John Leguizamo, mm-hmm. who, you know, had a lot of work when he was a kid, not so much anymore, but he's still trying to be you get into places and do things That's why he's here, you know, to kind of be in the in the mix of what's hot and what's hip with this great restaurant. There's some tech bros and of course a food critic all brought here to be taught a lesson and get an accusatory finger shoved into their face. <laughs> and when you're watching it, you start going, oh man yeah I understand what it's like to be in the food industry and have to deal with these people. You know it's real tough when they talk down to you and they they're demanding and they're outright rude or they're just elitist and all this stuff and so you start going this is uh this is going to be an interesting sort of well what's it like on the other end uh you know when they try and address that then quickly it's this is not realism (laughs) uh it goes it goes way to the far ends to make its point and Uh does so because Film, theater, all art can do. It doesn't have to necessarily be a realistic story. So it goes super far and to show you how awful people ruin beauty. That's essentially what this movie is about. In this case, it's about food, the preparation of it, the art of it, the delivery, Mm. and about all the wrong people get to enjoy the fruits of being well off. Uh, (laughs) I think we can agree on that, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, That's true. That's true. Why that guy? Why is that the rich guy? Can't this person over here? You know, I've, I've worked a... I worked this uh, TV show about six years ago, and the set was a mansion in Westwood, and it was a big sprawling mansion with staircases that came down to this pool, and the pool went out to this guest house, and it was just gorgeous. And I was uh-huh. like, uh, You know, which Kardashian lives here? <laughs> and they said, no, 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 this is the guy who invented the MRI. And I said, well, I want that guy to have a mansion. You know, that guy, <laughs> veterans, these are the people who should have mansions. right? Well, you'll quickly see in the menu that these are the wrong people. And they got it coming. So if you want to see them get their comeuppance in a potentially unpleasant way, uh, check out the menu. I had a friend see it recently call me just yesterday crying when it was over because she's worked in the trenches of the food industry. And she's like, first, I felt like I was going to have this great experience. Like, well, yes, give it to him. Yes. Yes. The little guy is going to be, and then by the end, but it's, it's message is so much broader and go, goes so big that she was just a wreck by the time it was over. So you can have anything from an entertaining experience to a highly emotional experience, but either way, you will be affected uh, by the menu.
0: Well, let's go to the second film. Um, uh, a uh, spoiler alert, I believe is, yes, the name of it is a uh, spoiler alert. And this is a, uh, romantic, uh, comedy drama of a different style.
3: Comedy, then drama. Both going hard in both directions. It's based on a book by TV guide writer Michael O'Siello about Kit, the man he falls in love with, and the ensuing cancer diagnosis that comes right when their relationship is at its lowest point. Hmm. So they're they're doing great. They're doing great. They're not doing so great, and then cancer. And so they're even living in separate places by the time this diagnosis comes. So. How do you handle that? This is from director Michael Showalter, who directed The Big Sick. So this is his thing, I guess. Yeah, uh (laughs) Uh, To handle uh, (laughs) relationship stories and comedy dramas that have to do with an illness, sort of driving a wedge in between them or bringing them together or at least causing some sort of uh, chaos in the middle of what their their lives are trying to lead. I I love this movie. If I were to put a quote on the and it'd be tough to even put this quote, but if I ever put a quote on the Blu-ray cover, it would be utterly charming hmm. because it strikes the right chord for everything it tries to do in both comedy and drama. And, you know, you can imagine doesn't shy away from very powerful scenes about someone going through cancer, chemo, the whole business. It could slip into melodrama, but these great performances and a very sharp script kind of save it from going too far that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll mention the script, David Marshall Grant, who is an actor and has been for years. I remember from a film called American Flyers with Kevin wow. Costner before The Untouchables. So wow. like, so he's been around and now he just, I don't know how often he writes, but he did a great job of co-writing the script with Dan Savage, who you may know as the author of the Savage Love Advice column and a fierce advocate for LGBTQ plus rights and and. The greatest pundit you could ever have on your show by the way put dan savage on your show whether it's real time or the news or whatever uh he's awesome so there he's a, he's very smart man isn't very he smart. yeah oh, and incredible. i love listen and he brought that smart to the script there's plenty of times in the script when you know okay so they take in, they do an interesting thing where since osiello is a tv guide writer he loves tv they he often pre- pictures his life as a sitcom, especially his childhood. So they show scenes from his childhood like a sitcom. Interesting. Which I wasn't sure was going to work because I'm like, well, this seems like a lovely comedy drama. And then we have like a film construct that's going to be different from everything else. But but it ends up being interesting because it gets you a lot of information about his character and his family and his past without long monologues that would otherwise drown the movie when we get to the present we can do things because the sitcom showed you some information that you needed to know about his mother about when he was a fat kid etc so uh yeah that shouldn't work it does and this is another movie like bros which came out recently which is a straight comedy uh, about uh, a gay couple who you know, there isn't even a whole lot, two bros outside of they meet, they they, they have trouble, they get back together. But overall, bros is a hilarious comedy. One mm-hmm. of the funniest movies of the year. Mm-hmm. Couldn't find an audience. Spoiler alert, seems to have trouble finding an audience as well. So it's meant for the theater, I think, because it's got a lot of story that can work on you if you're paying attention. You know, if you get a phone call or whatever, you don't, <laughs> you don't watch the movie at the opera house. I recommend that's my problem with streaming in general. Um, And also, look, given that I lost my wife and a fellow Fredonia alum uh, to cancer three years ago, this movie risked being way too soon. And yet it might be just the right time, I think, because I had many of the moments this character has in the movie when Michael has to fight for his loved one to get a bed for his chemo because he has rectal cancer he can't sit for four hours you know and they go well we don't have any beds and he says well listen i need to he needs that and they walk away he goes finds him, tracks him down says look i need you to get a bed and i've had that very same experience when it's like hey we're meeting a new oncologist i need the records uh, to take to this new oncologist. Well, we can have them in three to four business days. We're meeting tomorrow. I need mm-hmm. these now. Well, we can't do it. <laughs> and I start yelling. So I've totally right. felt, you know, if anyone has been in a situation, you know, they, they played this out very real and very emotional and, uh, of course what happened the lady goes in the back prints out the records brings them to me i'm like well, why didn't you just do that in the first place you know, exactly instead, right <laughs> they say three to four days probably because then they don't get in trouble if they don't you know right. but this is stuff i needed right away and his the frustration uh the, the the love the two characters when they fall in love that's all real and and palpable and then when there's frustration and pain and heartache uh that's all real and palpable well uh, as well i thought this film was really good and plus you got Sally Field and Bill Irwin I was going
0: to ask you about those two because I mean Sally Field and Bill Irwin talk about talk about two wonderful actors ready to be you know the kinds of parents that I imagine this film needs they're they're, because they're terrific
3: yeah they're the parents of Kit the the man the young man who's has cancer they are, yeah, it's a steal, getting them. It feels like a bargain to get uh-huh. these two guys. I mean, Sally Field's fantastic. Bill Irwin is amazing. These are t- two great actors, yeah, just coming into their sideline parts, killing it, and you know you don't have to worry about them. So, to me, this just hits all across the board. It's very accessible, very fun, very tear-jerking. Without, you know, any, it's not trying to be anything more than it is. It's not failing at trying to be what it is either. It hits the bullseye. I I enjoyed this movie very, very much.
0: Okay, so that's the spoiler. That's the second of the January movies coming at the Opera House. And the last one is uh, entitled um, Empire of Light. And this is a a British film, as far as I can tell. It's sort of, um, you know, like, it seems to be a a film uh, that's set with the working class, but some interesting things take place in it. A lot of things.
3: Kind of don't know what it's trying to focus on one minute to the next. It throws a lot into the mix and handles it all because Sam Mendes is a skilled director. He directed Skyfall and Spectre, two big Bond movies. But uh, let's not forget, he also directed American Beauty and Mm -hmm. directed 1917 and Road to Perdition. He's a very, very skilled director. As you probably know, started in the theater. So look at him. Yes, Uh, He returns to a prestige project here. But uh, it Perhaps so simple, even though there's a lot in there, like I said, there's a lot going on, yet it's simple. Somehow he does that, Hmm. uh, that it could be overlooked. I suggest checking it out to make up your own mind. Um, But here's the number one reason you guys see it. Olivia Colman. Oh, yes. Olivia (laughs) Colman. And you should see everything she's in and everything Mm -hmm. she does. Uh, She plays a woman working in the 1980s cinema in Great Britain who forms a relationship with a new employee, but she's struggling with mental health. So there's Mm -hmm. one thing that's going on. Plus the new employee is black. So they're contending with all the racism in England in the 1980s. So there's that plus Mm -hmm. there's all the love of movies. So there's that there's a, there's a lot going on, but uh, along the way you're, you're joined by some of the greats of all time. You have uh, Roger Deakins is your cinematographer here. Roger shot Skyfall and he, won the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049. He shot No Country for Old Men. I mean, it's one of the best cinematographers of all time. So this movie looks beautiful. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done the score. Trent Reznor, you may know from Nine Inch
0: Nails. Nine Inch Nails, yes, I know.
3: <laughs> well, is that his first? He won the Oscar for The Social Network, I believe. Uh-huh. And he scored The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He's worked a couple times with David Fincher. This is a gorgeous, lush piano score. It's crazy. Uh, and he does a fantastic job of it. So those two guiding you along with Sam Mendes' direction. Um, it may not achieve everything the movie tries to do in terms of showing you uh, its love of cinema. But, uh, you know, it's a very sincere film. It is British, of course, as you said. It's very British. He, uh, you could, The filmmaker here, Sam Mendes, writing the script for the first time. He usually directs other people's scripts. He's demanding period accuracy accuracy and he's uh, wanting to summon the ghosts of the past for this story and you kind of get swept up in it even though there's sometimes so much in the mix you're not sure what to get most passionate about mm-hmm. i think throughout though it's always olivia coleman you always come back to her she's magnificent and centers the whole film uh and you got toby jones in there too who's a good actor every once in a while coming around he's the projectionist so he's the guy who really starts talking about cinema and whatever everything cinema can do uh, and eventually Cinema and Olivia Coleman kind of come together at the end for an emotional moment uh for the viewer as well but that's it's a it's a lovely film and you know it it's a may not achieve everything it wants to do but you get in there and see what you like and those moments that you like I think you'll really enjoy yeah
0: um so so I have to get before we go um I I do have to just get one thing out of you because i don't know if i'm going to be able to get you back i hope i oh i I will get you back at some point in time but if i don't get you back by oscar time Ah. which i'm going to ask you uh put you on the spot now and ask you which movie should win the oscar for best picture and which movie will win the oscar for best picture hey yay might be a little Uh, too early for this for you huh
3: yeah (laughs) Tom, uh, you may not want to hear it but this top gun maverick is amazing (laughs) it's a phenomenal movie that uh, that is the most enjoyable exciting film you'll see all year and i you can't say bad things about it for achieving that Uh uh-huh you know, it, but, in, you know, you obviously want to look at prestige films about important topics and think that those are the best film. But Top Gun Maverick is phenomenal in the world of like prestige picks, smaller movies about human drama. The Banshees of Inna Sharon is fantastic with Colin Farrell delivering one of his best performances. Brendan Gleason, brilliant as always. And this Martin McDonough guy hasn't made a bad movie yet. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a great playwright like Sam Mendes slips into cinema and suddenly is an amazing director like i don't know how he does it but and this is another one it's it's like a enemy's origin story about a guy who just says one day you know what i can't be your friend anymore because i got things i want to do I'm in my 60s i need to write music and have a legacy and how do they each handle this situation so those are probably two of my favorites along with everything everywhere all at once is is the wackiest movie of the year that hits so many points that sets out to hit that it should not the juggling of everything those guys throw into the mix the directors uh the daniels daniel kwan and daniel Scheinart, i believe Mm -hmm. uh to to stick the landing on a movie that shoots that high is a miracle and of course we got short round like who there's your Oscar lock I think uh Kehai Kwan wins best supporting actor uh-huh. for, for that film best picture still up in the air Tom I wish I could tell you a will win Tar is phenomenal. Kate oh, Blanchett's wow. performance in that is r- ridiculous I mean again, while you're walking the earth with her and not watching her why are you walking the earth and not watching her stuff. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Tom, you will love that movie, Tar. Uh So let's see if maybe that comes to the opera house somewhere down the line. Okay. But uh, So those are the four, I think, that are in the mix.
0: All right. Well, Paul, thank you very much. I do appreciate it, uh, as always, having you around. And uh, if we do get a little bit closer to Oscar time and they haven't done it, maybe I'll find a way to squeeze in a little Oscar rant. Who knows? I mean, you know, get you a different platform. Paul Preston from The Movie Guys, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Tom. The Cinema Series always plays on Saturdays and the following Tuesdays, with both days having a 7.30 p.m. start time. The Menu plays on Saturday, January 14th and 17th. Spoiler Alert screens on January 21st and 24th. And Empire of Light will be shown on January 28th and 31st. Tickets are $7 for adults. $6.50 for Opera House members, and $5 for students. Tickets are available at the door only on the night of the show. And that's it for this winter break edition of Notes from the Aisle Seat. My thanks to Dr. Robert Strauss, Mr. Peter Tucker, and the movie guy, Paul Preston, for being my guests on this episode. Notes from the Isle Seat is a production of the 1891 Fredonia Opera House in Fredonia, New York. For more information on any of the Opera House's events, call the box office at 716-679-1891. Visit the website at www.fredopera.org or email at operahouse at fredopera.org. Notes from the Isle Seat is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and also on the Opera House YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, please consider following us by clicking the follow button on our website at isleseat.podbean.com and spreading the word through your social media feeds. If you have an arts event you'd like featured on the podcast, why don't you drop us a line at opera house at fredopera.org. And we'll see about featuring your event. Please try to give us a month's advance notice if possible to facilitate timely scheduling. If you have any suggestions, comments, or criticisms of the podcast, just drop us a line at opera house at fredopera.org. We'll be glad to receive your feedback. Our next episode will be available on January 25th, 2023. I'm Tom Lachlan. And until then, be safe out there and be kind to one another.